The Seahawks suffered a devastating overtime loss to the Raiders on Sunday, dropping them out of the playoff race. What did we learn on both sides of the football? Rob Rang and I are going to be taking one last look at Sunday's game on our Tell the Truth Tuesday of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your lead host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for our Tell the Truth Tuesday podcast, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. A special thanks to all the 12s out there for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And a special welcome to our new listeners as well. I'm going to make a quick apology right now. Sorry if my voice echoes a little bit. I am going to be leaving this house in the next few days. I am in the final stages of moving out of my house. My current office does not have anywhere to sit. So, I'm currently sitting on a paint can in my kitchen. That's how <laughs> diehard and dedicated I am with getting this podcast done. So still doing a show, maybe not the best quality audio that we've normally had, but Rob, we're still going to have a lot of fun with Tell the Truth Tuesday and taking a first look at the Los Angeles Rams, Seattle's upcoming week 13 opponent. Now for your lead story here on our Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. The Pro Bowl may not actually be happening this year, at least not the way it has been for the last several decades. No tackle-oriented, and that's really putting it lightly. I can't remember the last time I actually saw a real tackle in a Pro Bowl game, hence that's why they're not doing it anymore. But they're still voting for the Pro Bowl games. There's going to be a really exciting skills competition and a flag football game. The Seahawks are well represented in voting right now. Rob, three players, all who would be first-time Pro Bowl selections, leading their respective positional groups currently in voting. And that includes Geno Smith, who at over 70,000 votes is ahead of Jalen Hurts of the Eagles right now. Maybe the biggest surprise of the three players leading their positional groups. Yeah, I mean, you got Geno Smith, you got Tariq Woolen, and you got Jordan Brooks. I mean, oh my goodness. I think that this is the biggest uh, you know, sign of respect that everybody across the National Football League, whether it be fans, whether it be coaches, whether it be media, whether it be players, that people are paying attention to what Seattle is doing so far. Um, and so as you mentioned, I mean, Geno Smith ahead of Jalen Hurts, ahead of, you know, Aaron Rodgers has not had a very good season this year, but at the same time, he is still the biggest name when it comes to the NFC side at the quarterback position. I, frankly, I was surprised that Aaron Rodgers hasn't have more votes. Again, I don't think that he's had a very good year at all. But at the same time, I know the way that voting like this typically goes. I am surprised that people across the country are recognizing what Geno Smith has done this season. He, he has been absolutely spectacular. We were kind of joking about it before we were recording live here. And, you know, we kind of acknowledge that during the Pro Bowl competition, during the skills competition, if it came down to accuracy, Geno Smith might just win the darn thing. Um, because he has been spectacular. Uh, you know, Jordan Brooks just simply leads the NFL in tackles. Tariq Woolen, as a rookie, one selected in the fifth round, just leads the NFL in interceptions. He's been absolutely spectacular. So this is the thing I like the most about it is the respect that Seattle is getting from people all across the country and the fact that it's legitimate 
that all of the three players who are getting this type of hype for the Seahawks have all been statistically dominant. They earned this type of praise. Yeah, and I think anybody that points out the quarterback position and says, well, that easily should be Jalen Hurts, I don't know that I could make a counter-argument to that, especially what we saw him do to the Packers' defense on Monday night, and he is starring for the team with the best record in the entire NFL. So obviously Jalen Hurts, if he was the starter for a game that isn't actually going to happen, you know, you'd understand it. But Geno Smith has been really darn good, 72.8% completion rate, 19 touchdowns, just five interceptions this season. He has been one of the best quarterbacks in the entire NFL. So he absolutely deserves consideration here. And it is a sign of respect that fans around the country are voting for Geno Smith and giving him recognition for what he has been able to do this season. As for the two defenders, Tariq Woolen and Sauce Gardner are the two top vote getters in each conference. So two rookies, one being a top five pick who was expected to be an immediate star for the New York Jets and Sauce Gardner. And then you got Tariq Woolen, a fifth rounder who most people were viewing as a long-term project. Here he is leading all corners with five interceptions, having a dynamic rookie season. Both these players are in the mix for all pro honors, which obviously would have much more meaning on a resume. But I'm just going to say this for fans that are watching or listening to the show and they're like, eh, Pro Bowl, who cares? This is still a significant deal for players to have on their resume. It helps them bargain for more money when they get to the contract table at the end of their rookie deals. Uh, a player like Geno Smith that has not been a starter for seven years, if he's named a Pro Bowler, he and his agent can say, hey, I was one of the top six quarterbacks in the NFL according to Pro Bowl voting. If I'm named the starter, this is why I deserve $30-plus million per year. It is still a big deal, especially now that a third of the vote goes to coaches and a third of the vote goes to players, and it's not just a fan-driven vote anymore. And So this is a sign of respect. I think that it still has a lot of meaning, even if there isn't a Pro Bowl game anymore and it's just a seals competition. It is still a major honor, especially for all three of these guys who are at different stages of their career. Jordan Brooks is in year three. He hasn't been a Pro Bowler yet, but he's been on the cusp of being a Pro Bowler he'd get that opportunity in year three as he gets closer to the end of his rookie contract. He can use that to bargain. Gino being in quarterback purgatory for almost a decade and now being one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL out of nowhere. And of course, Tariq Woolen being the rookie and being way better right off the bat than anybody could have thought. This would be a tremendous honor for all three players being first-time selection. So it is still a big deal to these guys. Absolutely, it's a big deal. You know, I, I kind of... I say it all the time. I mean, a lot of our listeners know that I continue to be a teacher full time. Uh, and, and one of the things I try to just acknowledge to my students, to fellow staff members, um, is just the kindness always counts. And if you are going to give that type of respect to these players, uh, again, just considering the fact that Seattle has so often just been you know, a, a place that doesn't get much respect. You know, a lot of the, the people voting on the East Coast, they're, they're going to sleep before Seattle is even playing their games. And, you know, they're just not, not the very many people who are paying attention to what the Seahawks are doing unless it gets down into the deep playoffs. Um, but with, with the Seahawks not expected to play very well and for them to exceed those expectations and people already acknowledging what they are doing, Again, the, the kindness counts. The people are paying attention. People are giving that respect. Celebrate your victories because these truly are victories. Because again, this isn't about hype. There have been some other former Seahawks who have gotten plenty of attention long after they were playing an exceptional level. 
uh, in, in football and yet still found themselves voted into the Pro Bowl. All three of these players, and Geno Smith, Jordan Brooks, and Tariq Wollin, deserve this Pro Bowl, perhaps even all pro honors. And it is just heartwarming to see them getting that acknowledgement from people who aren't just in the Seattle area. And right now, it is worth noting, this is all based on fan voting. So I'm sure the 12s have been voting like crazy. And and by the way, you can continue to vote at NFL.com or the Seahawks website. And I expect that these three players are going to continue to get plenty of love from fans. But this is driven nationally, especially Geno Smith. I think his story is resonating with fans all over the NFL. Like, I've had plenty of Jets fans reach out like, you know, it stinks that he's not doing it for us. But we're really happy to see the success that he's having. And so you can't tell me that other fan bases are not, they're not voting for Geno Smith. I mean, they absolutely are because it's just a rare story. You don't see quarterbacks be backups for seven years after being a failed starter and then become a top five quarterback in the NFL. It just doesn't happen very often. And yet that's what Geno Smith has been able to do this year. You don't see six foot four corners with four, two, six, 40 yard dash speed. And oh, by the way, can also play really good football like Tariq Woolen's doing for this team. And Jordan Brooks, raw stats, the dude just makes tackles all over the field and that catches the attention. And quite frankly, I don't think, and this is not necessarily a shot at Jordan Brooks, but the middle linebacker position in both conferences, it's, it's a position that teams are not prioritizing very much right now in today's NFL and so you don't have a ton of star power necessarily in that position like you used to have, but Jordan Brooks is becoming one of those star caliber players for the Seahawks in the middle. Even if there have been some mistakes along the way, he's still one of the best linebackers in football. So I think all three of these guys are very much deserving, and we'll see if they can hang on. If the Seahawks can get back in the win column, that would certainly help their chances getting more fans across the country to vote for Seahawks players and help these guys maintain their lead at their respective positions. Coming up next is Tell the Truth Tuesday. We're going to take one final look at Sunday's overtime loss to the Raiders. Maybe dish out some hot takes, some in-depth analysis after watching the All-22 film. Plenty of good stuff coming up next in our second segment of the Locked On Seahawks podcast. Turo is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace. With Turo, you can book any car you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. Browse a huge selection of vehicles for just about any occasion or budget across the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and soon in Australia. Book a spacious SUV or minivan for a family road trip. Get a classic or luxury car for a special event, birthday, or holiday. Find affordable economy cars if you're on a budget and just need to get from A to B. Test drive that new electric vehicle you've had your eye on to see how it fits in your everyday life. Many Turo hosts can even deliver the car right to you. Every trip is backed by liability insurance. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Ditch boring rental cars and find your drive at Turo.com. You're listening to Tell the Truth Tuesday here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad, as always, to be joined by my co-host in, front, in crime and good friend. I was starting to say co-host and friend there for a second. Rob Rang. Really, that is perfect. You're my co-host and friend. So anyway, let's get to Tell the Truth Tuesday. This is one of our favorite episodes of the week. Maybe not necessarily coming off a loss, although I think there's a lot of enlightening things to say, at least for me, this is how I feel, and I know you have a lot of exciting stuff that you want to talk about. We both had a chance to re-watch the film. I watched the All-22 a couple times this morning, and there's always things that are not as bad as you thought they were, and there's always things you're like, man, that was way worse than I thought it was. And so really looking forward to the opportunity to dive into some takes, and I'm going to get it started right now. One thing that was just as bad as what I thought it was, watching live on Sunday, the offensive line. 
And in particular, the run blocking was an unmitigated disaster. One of the touchdown runs that Ken Walker III had, his first one, was not blocked well. That was just outstanding running by Ken Walker III, bouncing it outside. And Tyler Lockett, let's give Tyler Lockett some credit. I think something that few people give him attention for that he's actually very good at for a 185, 190-pound receiver, that dude blocks his heart out. And he had a really nice block at the end of that play that allowed Ken Walker III to dive inside the pylon and score. Nonetheless, it didn't feel like the effort was there from the offensive line opening up holes. They couldn't control the line of scrimmage. And there's one player in particular, and I've been complimentary of Austin Blythe. He may still be the guy next season and beyond for the Seahawks at center, but I don't think this is a hot take if you've watched the last couple of games. Rob, I think that center remains Seattle's biggest long-term need on the offensive side of the football. And maybe long-term means two years from now. Maybe it means next year getting that player in here. But at under 300 pounds, Austin Blythe does the best that he can. And there are games that he holds up better than others. But the Raiders, their defensive line, particularly the interior, they had not been very good this year. Let's just be frank. That was a position group that had been under a lot of fire in their three and seven start. And yet Andrew Billings comes in and it felt like every time the Seahawks tried to run the ball, he was getting by Austin Blythe with ease. He did it to him a couple times with swim moves as a pass rusher too. It just felt like Blythe was playing like a revolving door in this game and they need more from their center. The communication that he's brought to the table has been huge for this offense. It's really helped the two rookie tackles. And I think he's had some games that he's played pretty well. I think he is an average starter when he's playing his best, but he has not been playing in his best the last two weeks. And it's been against opponents that had 325, 330 plus pound defensive tackles that also could move. And that is a bad recipe for an undersized center that just hasn't been able to showcase consistently that he can create any push in the run game. I think center is clearly an area in this upcoming draft with those four selections they have in the first two rounds you go get the best center you can get your hands on. I think that's got to be a priority for this team. I 100% agree with you. I've been arguing that center is a huge, huge area of concern for this team for the last couple of seasons. Fortunately, this is a very good center class coming up. I look forward to kind of breaking that down because, again, I agree that center is an area of concern for the Seahawks. I thought the Austin Blythe, frankly, played the way that I felt on Sunday a couple of days after Thanksgiving, eating a little bit too much of you know pumpkin pie and turkey. I thought he looked slow. Uh, I thought that he you know, one of the things that makes him as effective as he can be is his initial quickness, his ability to adjust. Um, he has always kind of lacked that sand. He's not a real big physical guy, as you mentioned. And I thought that he was beaten by power. I thought he was beaten by quickness. That is a huge area of concern. You you also mentioned Tyler Lockett. And while I will certainly acknowledge that Tyler Lockett is a better run blocker downfield that he generally gets credit for. One of the things that he often gets credit for is his ability as a route runner. And certainly as a smaller, shiftier guy, he can be a very effective route runner. And I, I don't even know that it was Tyler Lockett per se who was most at fault for Geno Smith's interception, but it was an ugly interception. It's one that Geno Smith is likely to get blamed by a lot of people because when he threw that ball to the left side, 
it looked like Tyler Lockett just stopped his route. And if you watch the All-22, you see that he and DK Metcalf basically were both running the exact same routes from either sides of the field. They ran deep crossing routes, basically bumped in the middle of the field. That completely threw off the timing. And then again, when the ball was thrown by Geno Smith, he's anticipating that Tyler Lockett is going to be two or three more yards to Geno Smith's deep left. And Tyler Lockett wasn't there. He stopped and looked around like, why are you throwing the ball here? I am not there. It was an ugly interception in a lot of different ways. One that, again, I think a lot of people are going to pin on Geno. Some people are going to blame on Tyler Lockett. Perhaps it was DK Metcalf. Perhaps it was just a poorly conceived play by Shane Waldron. It doesn't really matter. The point is the Las Vegas Raiders got the ball, and it didn't take them long to score thereafter. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because it really was all about execution. And I know one thing that we talked about going into this show, there seems to be a prevailing narrative out there that Geno Smith can't finish off games and that he, when he has the ball in his court, a chance to win in overtime, can't get it done. And I understood that argument last year, even early this season with some of the games the Seahawks had a chance to win and then he wasn't able to come up with big plays in the clutch. And I'm sure you have plenty to weigh in on this as well, but this was not an instance where I feel like you can put the blame on Geno Smith. You know, maybe that botched handoff that he had to Ken Walker, but he came right back and let a touchdown drive, the very next drive that put the Seahawks ahead with under five minutes to go in the game. To me, that's a game-winning drive. Defense, go make a few plays, and then you win. And it wasn't his fault, those last two drives, the one they had at the end of the fourth quarter and the one in overtime. He was under duress, and there were just simple mistakes made execution-wise across the board from other players that put him in a position where he couldn't lead them to victory. I don't think it falls in the quarterback at all. It certainly didn't fall on the quarterback on the very last play, the you know, I mean, or at least the last play when Seattle had the ball. You might remember that that was a play that um, you know Geno Smith collects the pass and tries to get off a quick pass. Travis Homer in the flat should have been a first down. It was a relatively easy throw. But again, if you're breaking this if this play down and from the all twenty two, you can see that Max Crosby is lined up to Abraham Lucas's right. And right alongside of Abraham Lucas at the right tackle position is Noah Fant. Now, I have argued many, many times that Seattle needs to implement their tight ends more. This is one of the reasons why that they are not implementing their tight ends more. Noah Fant just simply missed the chip block. He was late off the line. It was pretty loud there. It was more Raider fans, I think, in this particular instance than it was Seahawks fans. Or maybe it was some Seahawks fans that maybe it had a couple of too many drinks or didn't know what was going on in that particular game situation. But regardless of whatever the reason was, Noah Fett was laid off the ball. And instead of getting a chip block, he kind of a push on Noah Fett. That allowed, excuse me. Noah Fant gets a push on Max Crosby. That allowed Max Crosby to slide right on past Abraham Lucas, who was expecting a little bit of a slowdown, as was Geno Smith. Both Abraham Lucas and Geno Smith clearly, if you watch the tape, clearly were caught off guard by how quickly Max Crosby got to Geno Smith. Give Geno Smith credit for getting the ball off at all. That could have easily been a forced fumble at that point because Max Crosby is on Geno Smith before he can damn near say the word hike. 
I mean, it was quick. And he gets the ball out to Travis Homer. The ball bounces. Travis Homer wasn't able to make that reception, make the play. And suddenly Seattle has to punt. And, of course, we all know what happens once the Las Vegas Raiders got the ball back late in, the, in overtime. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I think if you go back and look, there were a couple of receivers, if there was a split second longer, that Gino would have had time to throw the football to. But like you said, I don't think he could have finished saying hike and Max Crosby was already back there and not being able to execute. Even if Noah Fant would have been able to lightly hit him, that would have been enough probably to give Gino time to unload the football. But there, there wasn't even time for him to read what was in front of him. And it, like you said, it's a miracle that he unloaded the football. We've talked so much about the poor run defense. Obviously, it was bad. You give up 229 running yards on 33 carries to a player, including a 30-86 and 86 yard touchdown run. That is not effective run defense. But, you know, some fans might take this as a hot take. I'm going to say this right now to rewatching the game. The lack of a consistent pass rush, in my opinion, I've changed my tune in this. I, I didn't feel this way last week, but now that I've seen two games in a row, the lack of a consistent pass rush to me is a greater concern than the run defense woes. And I'll start off by saying this. If you take those two big touchdown runs out of the equation, which obviously in real life, you can't do that. You gave up a 30 and 86 yard touchdown and they were terrible breakdowns. When the Seahawks have breakdowns, they are all out meltdowns, like Ireland getting engulfed in lava meltdowns. Like they don't have small breakdowns. It's always a 50 yard touchdown or a 60 yard pass play or whatever. Those are the breakdowns they have. When they don't break down and they actually execute their run fits, their run defense is still pretty darn good. They had a lot of really good plays stuffing Josh Jacobs in that game, including that fourth down stop by Cody Barton, where he got in the backfield on the pitch and brought him down for a one-yard loss. And it was a turnover on down. There were a lot of really good plays. His other 31 carries, he averaged 3.6 yards per carry. Now, that's way more carries than you want a running back to get. Pete Carroll will be the first to tell you that. They had that issue in Tampa. They didn't run the ball necessarily super effective, but they were good enough and got enough carries. It wore the defense down. It kept the defense on the field. It kept Geno Smith off the field. The Raiders were able to replicate that. And that, to me, boils down to the pass rush at this point. You can't expect your run defense is going to be able to avoid cracking when you are getting 35 to 40 carries against you because the other team keeps converting on third down. And the biggest problem there, they're not getting to the quarterback. They had no quarterback hits in the third and fourth quarter. They had one in overtime. So one in the final three periods of play, you can't win football games consistently when you are not getting consistent pressure. And in this case, getting hit. Derek Carr was sitting back there on a recliner and sipping back on a cocktail. That's how easy it was in the second half for him. Nobody was getting close to him for the most part. That is a concern because this pass rush looked like it was coming to life. I had more optimism last week. And now I'm starting to wonder, is that really the real problem? Because that is leading to these third down issues, more run plays. And that is one of those things that it just kind of builds up. And then that leads to broken plays and the meltdown that we saw late with a fatigued defense. Oh, that's exactly what it was. It was a very fatigued defense because I'm going to kind of highlight a player here in Al Woods. I talked about him in yesterday's show, Corbin. I, I thought early in the game, he was spectacular. You know, in fact, the, the very first play of the game, I mean, where Derek Carr kind of goes back and he gets the, the ball intercepted by Quandre Diggs, an unbelievable play by Quandre Diggs, but one that was also forced by Al Woods because he did get interior pressure. 
for a man who's 330 plus pounds, the swim move that he used over Las Vegas is, I can't remember if it was the right guard or the center, but he got right on by him very quickly, similar to Max Crosby's, as I just kind of mentioned before, was able to get immediate pressure on Derek Carr. Derek Carr lofts the ball into double coverage. Um, Quandre Diggs is the one who actually made the play, but Kobe Bryant was trailing behind Devontae Adams. It was very clear what Seattle was trying to do. They were trying to completely eliminate number 17 from this game. And in that particular play, as well as the second play later on where Quadra Diggs got another interception, they were able to do that. And, you know, and again, Al Woods being in that, applying that interior pressure, Puna Ford later actually got a sack, but you are right, sir. And then Seattle was unable to get any type of consistent pressure. If you're relying on two of the biggest guys on your team in the interior to get, uh, apply that pressure, and you're playing a 3-4 defense, this is all about the outside linebackers getting pressure, then that is a huge area of concern. And so while I certainly want to give credit, again, to Al Woods for supplying the pressure, certainly for Quandre Diggs making an unbelievable diving interception for his first pick of the season, I, at the same time, I certainly had to call out a whole bunch of players, including Al Woods, including Quandre Diggs. Basically, everybody, all 11 on Seattle's defense, with the possible exception of Tariq Woolen, who at least pursued downfield, trying to make a DK Metcalf type of poke the ball out at the very end kind of a play when Josh Jacobs ran for that 86-yard touchdown. But if you break down that play, you know, Josh Jones is the defensive player that misses the tackle. And you talked about before about breaking down. That is one of the things that Josh Jones did not do in that particular play. Um, but at the same time, I also saw an awful lot of guys who were fatigued, who were struggling to get off blocks. So the possible pro bowler and Jordan Brooks completely blocked at the line of scrimmage. Uh, Quandre Diggs, former pro bowler himself, completely blocked downfield. Uh, you know, Mike Jackson, they, Seahawks were, again, were trying to eliminate Las Vegas is passing. Mike Jackson was on a cornerback blitz. If he had been playing downfield and going against a wide receiver like normal, he might have been in position to, you know, try to make that tackle. And then certainly guys like Cody Barton, uh, Puna Ford, Shelby Harris, they were all just kind of playing their positions, but were blocked. And Josh Jacobs was two and through the line that quick and gone. And so to me, while we can, you know, kind of loft some praise about some of the, the individual uh, plays that the Seahawks made on defense, again, the, the reality is, is that 86 yards in less than four seconds, the Las Vegas Raiders stole this game and perhaps stole Seattle's best chance at qualifying for the playoffs. Yeah, and I think it boils down to the tackling has not been there at safety. I think Ryan Neal's been the exception to that rule, and not having Jamal Adams certainly hurts, but Diggs is still missing too many tackles and still having yes. issues with pursuit angles. He did make a couple nice plays on Sunday as a run defender. I thought overall played a pretty good game, but there were mistakes in there. We still haven't seen him playing at his very best as an all-around football player. And Josh Jones, I don't know what it is. When he gets into game action, if he's the third safety, he seems like he does okay. When he becomes one of the two starting safeties, it's almost like he can't handle the pressure. He becomes hesitant. He's not the same player. So I don't know what's going on there, if he's just letting the environment get to him. But that leads me to real quick, one last take that I have here. If Ryan Neal is going to miss any time, we talked about this yesterday. It sounds like he's got a decent chance to play this next weekend against the Rams. You're hoping that you have him on the field. But at this point, 
Josh Jones has not shown that he can be the number two safety. He has had enough opportunities this season. I think it's time to see what Joey Blunt can do if you have to play another safety because he's been great on special teams. And Pete Carroll kind of hinted at it yesterday that they have confidence in Joey Blunt. The way that he's played, he has handled everything they have thrown at him. So I'm just making that known that I think if you don't have Ryan Neal in this game, Joey Blunt has played some in the box. He's, he can hit people. We've seen him hit on special teams. He can be that inner, uh, interchangeable safety that the Seahawks are looking for to go with Quandre Diggs. Josh Jones can still be that nickel safety for you. He's done okay when he's been in that role. But at this point, it's time to see what the undrafted rookie can do. He's played well on special teams. See what he can do on defense. And the Rams, if they're playing a third-string quarterback with all the injuries that they have, as we'll talk about in a second, that might be the opponent to put a guy like Joey Blunt in and see what he can do, get him get his feet wet a little bit on defense. So we'll see what happens. Time to move on from this game, though, because the Seahawks are still a game over 500, still very much in the playoff hunt, even if right now they're not one of the top seven seeds after two losses in a row. And they're heading to L.A. against a very vulnerable, very banged-up Los Angeles Rams squad. We're going to take a look at what's new for Sean McVay's team and why they're struggling so much with a 3-8 and eight record. We'll get to that coming up next year on our Tuesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is releasing a slate of new football podcasts that we're sure you're going to love. Block Forever is a brand new podcast from former NFL All-Pro Ryan Khalil and Audible. Khalil takes the conversation about football to the next level. He's giving football fans an insider's look at the game through the eyes of the greatest players and personalities of all time. He sits down with star players, coaches, and former pros across the league to get real about what happens on the field and behind the scenes. So we're talking inside locker rooms, during team meetings, even back at the hotel. You'll hear from the likes of Christian McCaffrey talking about his love-hate relationship with fantasy football and Juju Smith-Schuster giving his most honest opinions on other players and positions in the league. Catch the full Block Forever series available anywhere. You get your podcasts audible. Get in the game. You're listening to Locked On Seahawks Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. A special thanks to all the 12s out there as always for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And for your second listen, make sure to check out the Locked On Sports Today podcast. They've got the biggest stories of the day, plus instant reactions, big game recaps, and the take of the day. It's available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcast. The Seahawks will be looking to snap a two-game losing streak heading to L.A. against the Los Angeles Rams. And in the past, this has been a date that you would circle because the Seahawks have had a lot of issues winning in LA, particularly against Sean McVay, the defending champion Rams. They've normally given the Seahawks fits in Southern California, but this has been a rough season for the defending champions. They're on the verge of getting eliminated from the playoffs and we're in week 13, losing the Chiefs last week. They're three and eight. They've got a bunch of injuries Cooper Cup is not going to play this game. He's probably not going to be back until the last couple of weeks, if he even comes back at all after ankle surgery. Allen Robinson, their other standout receiver, is going to need surgery, and he is done for the year. So they're not going to have their top two receivers. Aaron Donald is banged up. Matthew Stafford dealing with another concussion. Did not play last week. Even their second-string quarterback has been banged up. This football team has had a lot of injuries, and quite frankly, they weren't even playing very well before the injuries hit and were underachieving. So you don't take any opponent lightly, particularly a team coached by Sean McVay, but this is not even close to the team 
that won the Super Bowl in February. That's very true. At the same time, I think the Seahawks have to kind of take the approach that uh, that we talked about, that at least three players for Seattle should be taking when it comes to the Pro Bowl voting, and that, hey, it's still a big deal. These are still the Super Bowl champs. This is still a divisional opponent. And so Seattle has to walk into SoFi Stadium and take care of business if they want to have any chance at uh, you know competing for a, a playoff spot. Um, the Los Angeles Rams remain a very talented team. They're just not a very deep team where they are really having some problems is again, all the different positions that you just mentioned that they've had their injuries and the lack of depth is really showing up. The Rams made some very calculated gambles in terms of trading away their draft picks and not having quality players to back up their superstars. And as they've started to lose some of those players and not just the superstars like a Matthew Stafford or a Cooper Cup, but at the center position, at offensive, all along their offensive line, the Rams have really struggled this season. And so they are three and eight, as you mentioned before. But I just think that that bears repeating. It's very rare that you see a team win the Super Bowl and the next season have half the number of victories that they have losses. And yet that's where the Los Angeles Rams find themselves. But at the same time, while the Seahawks could applaud the, the possibility that Aaron Donald is not going to be available until you don't see him out there, then I think that you have to presume that he is going to be available for this team. And again, they, they've had injuries all up and down their entire roster. But I can tell you this, the, the, the Los Angeles Rams still have Bobby Wagner. And I would not be surprised at all if Bobby Wagner winds up making a big play against the Seahawks just for the revenge factor, just for the fact that he knows this team as well as anybody who's not already on Seattle's roster or on their coaching staff. So I do think that this is still a team that the Seahawks have to be very, very concerned about, whether it be John Wofford, a quarterback who has beat the Seahawks before, whether it be Bryce Perkins, a dual threat quarterback himself, who does present some awful uh, you know, creative ways in which he can beat a defense as well. This remains a formidable team. The Seahawks have got to bounce back. The, the, Seattle's lost two games in a row now. And if they lose three in a row, you can kiss goodbye your chances at the playoffs. Yeah, this is a must-win game. There's no question about it. We'll be talking about that a lot in episodes throughout the week. The Seahawks cannot afford to lose this game, especially with where the Rams are at. And, and that kind of desperation, it can lead to a really good performance. Or if you're a young team and that pressure starts to get to you, it can really affect your play. So you got to wonder if maybe that was part of the issue this weekend coming out of the bye. Maybe some of these rookies are starting to feel that pressure that they're in a playoff race. And Pete Carroll's got to find a way to make sure to curb that if that isn't all the issue. And you can't overlook any team. Sean McVay is a fantastic coach. And Bryce Perkins, there's a chance this will be his second straight start. More experience that he gets. He is a guy that has really good athleticism. And the Seahawks have had issues with athletic quarterbacks. So there could be some things to worry about there. But still, I think when you're looking at this from a realistic lens, they lost Andrew Whitworth to retirement. Von Miller goes to Buffalo. Odo Beckham Jr., is still looking to sign somewhere coming off an ACL tear. He's not with the team. Darius Williams killed the Seahawks over the years. He's now in Jacksonville. They lost Austin Corbett. Sebastian Joseph Day is an underrated player that left as well. 
they didn't have a lot of big additions. Allen Robinson and Bobby Wagner really were the two big names, and Robinson is out for the rest of the season and was really not playing that well up to this point. Really kind of had a disappointing first season with the Rams. Cut being out, Joe Noteboom, who was the replacement for Andrew Whitworth, is on injury reserve, and he's done for the season. Their top draft pick, Logan Bruss, he's been out the entire season. I mean, it has just been one of those years for this team. And so, again, you don't take any opponent lightly, but you look at the injuries the Rams have, especially if Aaron Donald somehow can't play in this game, and we'll know later this week. But this is a game the Seahawks absolutely must have. You know the Rams are going to be hungry to beat their division rival and they've had a lot of success over the years against the Seahawks they've lost a bunch of games in a row and sometimes that can lead to some good fortune and you win a game you're not supposed to win so Seattle can't take this opponent lightly but they absolutely have to win this football game with the injuries how decimated the Rams are you lose this game it does kick you out of the playoffs I mean technically they wouldn't be eliminated but it's hard to envision losing three games in a row and their last two being his teams that each had three wins apiece when they lost to him. Those are, that's not a playoff team. You can't lose to teams like that. And so this is a must win for the Seattle Seahawks. No, it, it really is. And as you mentioned, the, the fact that uh, the Rams lost their top rookie, Logan Bruss. I mean, I was fortunate enough to go to LA and see the Rams practicing uh, early on in their training camp. And Bruss was one of their best players. I mean, he looks like a future stud, not just a starter, a really good player for them. But he went down with injuries and the Rams have just struggled to replace him or anybody else along the offensive line. So this is the game. I, I realize that this is a, uh, a game on the road and that you should not necessarily expect to see Seattle's pass rush take off. But we've talked about the last two weeks that Seattle has struggled to stop the run. That's got to be priority number one, considering how well the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Las Vegas Raiders in back-to-back weeks, obviously there was a buy in between there, but back-to-back weeks essentially have just run the ball right down Seattle's throat. And you can make an argument and then all of Seattle's losses, they really have lost at the line of scrimmage. This is the game that you have to take advantage of an opponent that has been weakened along the offensive line and get some sacks on the quarterback, whoever he may be for the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah, this is a game you cannot lose in the trenches. You are not playing now. Obviously, if Aaron Donald plays, Aaron Donald by himself is a nightmare for opposing yeah. offensive lines. The Seahawks know that as well as anybody. But with the injuries, the inexperience they have in the offensive line, even the rest of their defensive line has got some weak points too. This is a game Seattle cannot get outplayed in the trenches. They have got to be able to get the job done on both sides of the line. And if they don't, it's going to be the biggest disappointment in a season that really had been a pleasant surprise up to these last two games. They're hoping to get that momentum back. And that's going to be a perfect segue because coming up on tomorrow's show, as always, it'll be Matchup Wednesday. Rob and I will be diving into six key matchups to watch heading into this first matchup of the season between the Seahawks and Rams. As always, we're looking forward to it. And there's going to be some fun matchups on both sides of the ball for us to break down with plenty of analysis and X's and O's. That'll be coming up tomorrow. You can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Check out Locked on Seahawks on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and streaming five days a week on YouTube. We'll see you tomorrow for Matchup Wednesday. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks.